0: Welcome Spartan Spartan Up Podcast, a podcast dedicated to ripping you off the couch. We are your resiliency partners. We're out there trying to make you stronger, faster, more resilient. That's our mission. Uh, so today, specifically, uh, well, let me talk first about our panel. We've got obviously me, re, uh, retired Colonel Tim Nye. We've got CEO uh, and Spartan founder, Joe DeSena. You hesitant? And I am a little bit. And today, we're, we are joined by former world champion rower Josh Crosby. Today's interview, maybe this is why I'm a little hesitant, is a good friend of mine, Lara Logan, uh, to be open with everybody. Uh, I met her, I think 2002, so what is that, 17 years ago. Uh, We've been uh, good friends ever since. Um, And so she did this interview. I'm a little bit familiar with her story or stories. Uh, Just a phenomenal woman, a world-class journalist, has really faced some unbelievable challenges and hardships. And she kind of talks with Lonnie Main, who did the interview, with just poise and grace and strength. And so uh, Lonnie does the interview. For those of you who don't know, Lonnie Main uh, runs a company or corporation or foundation. Yeah, it's
1: called Red Shoes Living. He basically uh, teaches corporations, teaches teams, uh, high-performing individuals how to be better. It's all the stuff we're into. He helps run our leadership program. He was willing to do the interview. We let him do it. And um, you're going to be blown away. We watched the interview. Uh, Josh actually started to tear up a bit, which I was surprised. That's not hard, though. But this is an amazing story. Hang with us, because we're going to come back after the interview. We're going to talk about what makes this so great, how to apply it to your life. and, um, And then we want to hear from you. So stay tuned.
2: Listeners, a quick warning. The interview in this episode includes the recounting of violent events and it may not be suitable for all audiences.
3: Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Welcome to Spartan Up.
4: My name is Lonnie Maine, and I am guest hosting this episode of the Spartan X Leadership here in Dallas. And Where I'm, are you guys? Come on. Yes, <laughs> and I have a very special guest, Laura Logan, Emmy Award-winning journalist who's been with 60 Minutes for a number of years, has done some incredible reporting, met some incredible people, and is still doing some incredible work. So, Laura, thank you for being with us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
4: You've got an incredible story, and uh, we probably aren't going to have enough time to cover all of it. But I want to talk for a minute about kind of the beginning for you. What uh, what made you want to get into journalism, and um, what keeps you passionate today as you move forward?
3: I guess I'm I'm naturally nosy. That's one thing. And um, but most importantly, really, I was I was born and raised by parents who um, who taught you to stand up for who you were, to know what you believe in and to be willing to take the hits for that, right? Principles mean nothing if they're just slogans or bumper stickers. They might as well be bumper stickers, honestly. And, um, and everything has a price, you know? So I grew up in South Africa under apartheid. Look at the price that people paid there to stand up for what they believed in. So I was I was lucky enough to be in an environment where I could see the very best in who we are when we do that. I understood the cost of doing that, and I kind of got lucky because it was just in my DNA, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to think about what's right and wrong. I know what's right and wrong. I don't have to think about how I feel about injustice. I know, like the core in me, everything, every fiber of my being is rising up against it, right? But I also, um, I also am conscious of how much I don't know. I never walk into any room thinking I got, I'm the smartest person in the room. And I even, uh, I even remember when I was on the battlefield in Afghanistan before um, the US bombing campaign began, right after 9-11, and all these experienced war correspondents and amazing journalists were coming down to the front line. I was living there um, on my own with the Afghan soldiers. And the Afghans were telling me, the general was saying, I can take Kabul in three days, I, less than three days. And I would test this out with all these journalists that would come, right? Because I was like, can they? How do I know? And, uh, and they would say, they would laugh and scoff at um, the Afghans. And they would say, well, they don't have this and they don't have armor. And they don't have that, whatever. And you know what? In the end, they took Kabul in a day and a half. Amazing. Amazing.
4: <laughs>
3: because they know what they're doing, they do it their way, right? Yeah. So, and I have an enormous respect for that. And that's what, that's how I approach everything. You you know, there's something called consistency. It's one of the most underrated qualities in my humble opinion, right? Because I may be a pain in the butt, but I'm always going to be a pain in the butt, right? That's not going to change. You're not going to not know which lara you're getting. Today, I'm loyal. Tomorrow, I'm not loyal. What does it mean then? Right. Right? It doesn't mean anything. So that's, to me, I just believe that nothing I've ever done in my work Matters more to me than uh the values with which I try to live my life. Yeah. I mean I fall short, of course, all the time. But um but there's not a day of my life that I don't know that I did I gave everything I had. You wanna talk about what resiliency is to me? Resiliency is overcoming that urge to lie on the couch right. and watch TV all day? Well, I don't know. I don't watch daytime TV. Why? Because if you let me, I'm going to do it all the time. It's going to be three weeks later. It's be like, Has anyone seen her? No, i got to fight that, right? I've got to fight that because life is for living. I will go at the end of a long journey when I've traveled across the world, and I just want to, you know, I just want to collapse, and I will try never to take an escalator if, there's a, if there are stairs because I think about the day I won't have that choice. Yeah.
4: I think that's powerful. And you know, we, well, at Spartan, we're trying to get as many people off the couch as we possibly can.
3: It's pretty amazing some of the guests and the people that
4: you have. Yeah, we really do. And there's quite a community and a following and a spirit with Spartan. And you you actually have that same spirit. We've talked already before, and I and I watched that spirit come out. You have two children. What um, Three,
3: because I have my son. That's step-top.
4: right, three. Thank you. What <laughs> is the advice you give them and will continue to give them as they grow up?
3: You know, we only have two rules in my house, and those are kindness and respect. And at different times, you know, people who, who know me have, you know, looked askance sometimes at the freedom that my children have and that kind of thing. But um, I don't worry about that, and I never have. Like, I wasn't that person who was worried about what the other people in the restaurant thought about your bad behaved children. I didn't allow them to be disrespectful um, and I never allowed them to be unkind. And, and when they, when I yell at my kids, I don't yell and scream at them because uh, I'm angry. You know, I don't. I try not to do that. In fact, honestly, this will sound like terrible parenting, but like if I, if if I feel myself getting angry, like if, if my son hurt my daughter or something like that, right? What I say is. I really want to hurt you right now. I'm having terribly evil thoughts, and I'm hoping that by talking to you about it, the fire in my belly is going to just... <laughs> and I'm going to be able to be a much better person and a much better mother. Look at that. I love you again. It's working. Okay, tell me why you did that, <laughs> right? And and But also what I tell them is, I'm not asking you um, to pick your clothes up off the floor. I'm not yelling at you. I'm never yelling at you to do that. What I say to my child sometimes is, wow, but you know, it was, I'm exhausted. And it was really hard walking into your room and seeing what I saw. I spent two hours cleaning earlier and uh, picking everything up. And, you know, I feel when I see that, I know you love and respect me, but when I see that, I feel like you really don't. And my, you know, my son, I mean, he literally has found the laundry basket. He found it on his own, you know? He found it on his own, and in my head, I remind myself when I reach for something in the pantry and there's a dinosaur and a bunch of candy wrappers and whatever else. Yes, I have sugar in my house. I confess. I confess. Okay, don't, don't uh, condemn me to death for that. Um, when I see that, I think about the day. When I'm everything in my pantry will be perfect. When I'm not going to step on on stuff and you know and 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 uh, say a few bad words right. to begin to overcome the pain shooting up my leg or whatever you know. No, I think every moment that I'm not with my children, a moment stolen from me. Honestly, yeah. even like like I, that's why I have to believe in this to be here, right? I do, I believe in this so uh, with all my heart because I'm giving up moments that I will never get back with them. Yeah. And they're the greatest thing that's ever happened to me.
4: You know, it's I, we've talked about this before, and it's interesting, children do that to us. They change our focus a little bit. And I love what you said about what you're teaching them. And yet you're still this incredible professional woman that's doing some amazing work out there as well. And you're balancing both of those things. And well, I don't of... know
3: if you balance like balancing. Yes. Is there it. balance? I don't think there's any balance. I mean, you know, working mom, there there's no balance. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally have to face those moments when uh I have to choose. I do it I have to do it all the time. And uh my my children win.
4: Yeah.
3: You know, if, if there's and sometimes when um I really have to do stuff for work. I've been gone all week. I was gone all last week on the border. I was, you know, on the border before that. I mean, that's hard, right? I'm, and so what I do is when I'm home, I, I, don't, I don't go out for dinner. I don't go see shows. I don't go visit friends. I mean, my friends, no, don't invite me to do something without my kids. Because the chances of me getting there are, you know, getting me there, it's a million to one. Right? It just ain't going to happen. So I don't have any balance. What did I give up? I gave up time for me. You know, I don't, my nails aren't done. Some people do find balance. I don't. I'm not saying it's impossible. Some people are much better at it than me. But maybe the balance is when you step back and look at a life well lived. Yeah. You can say, you really think when I was living in Iraq for five years that I could have been a good mother? Right. Yeah. No. Right. No, that was the time when, you know, the work consumed me. Right. This is the time when my children consume me. But I still am giving everything I've got
4: to the work that I do. Yeah. It seems like, you know, you, you stay focused wherever you are. You're focused in that moment, whether it's your children or it's the work that you do. Do you have a process that you go through to set that focus or to set the goals? Or do you just know what it is and the way you go?
3: You know, um, it's fine people ask me all the time, you go out on the stage, you know, you sit down for a 60 minutes interview. Sometimes it's a two, three, four, five hour interview. How do you prepare for these things? You know what I do? I, I inhale, I inhale information and sound. And, uh, when I get to an event, I meet people and I ask them questions and I listen. I have no idea when I walk out on stage what I'm going to say zero. I don't plan it. I don't think about it. I don't write it. I don't read from a piece of paper. When I do a 60 minutes interview or a, you know um, any kind of television interview or journal- that's based in journalism, what am I doing? I, I think about it and I learn as much as I can all the time so that I know what I'm talking about, at least. I have a basis from which to ask real questions. And most importantly, I follow up i'm paying attention to what you say. I'm listening to you right, mm-hmm. because what's worse than crafting you know an amazing question that everyone wants answered and then not making someone answer it right yeah
4: watched-
3: that's frustrating for people right when they watch it they don't want that it's frustrating i don't want well why didn't you know say this, and why didn't you say that? Mm-hmm. No, I mean you don't always get it right, but if you you know I naturally and logically and curiously follow the conversation where people wanted to go.
4: Do you remember one of your first assignments?
3: As a journalist? journalist. Oh, no, I mean, it's burned into my memory. You know why? A woman came to speak to us at school, in high school, about extra parliamentary political activity for women in South Africa. And really, that was personified by the movement called the Black Sash Movement, led by Helen Joseph. Extraordinary women who would wear long white dresses and a black sash and they would hold hands in front of demonstrators and protesters black, demonstrators mostly in South Africa, black and white women, not just white, and they would hold hands and, and walk in front of them to protect them. And you know it was it was peaceful protests. It was outside of parliament. And um, and a woman came, a journalist came to speak to us at my high school one day about uh, what they were doing. And I, I went to talk to her afterwards and I said, you know, I I want to be a journalist and she said, well I work at this newspaper. Come see my boss. So I show up and, uh, and that was it. And I'm standing there. They said, we've got an editorial meeting. You know, read the papers, find a story. I'm standing there reading the paper. I'm 17 years old in high school. And this guy comes up to me and says, what are you doing here? And I tell him, he's like, oh, i got a story for you. And he walks off. I don't know who he is, nothing. After the editorial meeting, you know, I'm standing, go back to the papers looking for a story. And this other guy comes up to me and he says, take this. He gives me two rolls of film. He says, take this downstairs to Duffy. He's waiting for you. I, think, I don't know who Duffy is, but I'm just going with it, right? I go downstairs. There's Duffy. He's the guy who spoke to me earlier. And I say, uh, what he said, this is for you. He said, thanks, get in. I'm like, get in. Get in the car. I get in the car. And there's a guy sitting there. And he's like, and they, and they drive off. And I'm like, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know where any of these people are. I don't even know why I'm there. And he says, well, start your interview. Well, he had told me about, uh, that he was that he was photographing a guy that day who looked like Ivan Lendl. That's how old I am. Oh, yeah. It was the days of Lendl versus McEnroe at Wimbledon, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And this guy looked, I'm not kidding you, identical to Ivan Lendl. And they were doing a big photo shoot, taking these pictures of, of Lendl and um, making this guy do it so that you could see how alike they were. And he said, start your interview. I was like, I don't know how to do an interview. And he didn't say that, right? right? But what I said was, I don't have any... Anything to write with. So he was annoyed and he pulled the car over and he gets out and he opens the trunk and I go there with him. And he's, you know, shuffling through his photography bag and he finds the stub of a pencil like this. And a Peter Stuyvesant cigarette box. Do you remember the old days? The box that boxes that were hard on the bottom? Mm -hmm. And that's what he gives me. He's annoyed as hell, right? And there I go back and I do my interview and I write little tiny notes on the back of the cigarette box. And the story gets syndicated to all the newspapers across the country, and I never look back.
4: Wow. Uh, And what about the first time you went to war? What was that experience when you became a war reporter and you were embedded? What was that experience like the first time?
3: I wasn't embedded the first time. People like to say, oh, she's the embedded reporter, right? She's the military person. No. Come on. I, I was in the Civil War in Angola. I was in the Civil War in Mozambique. I was in a coup in Burundi. I was in the townships of South Africa where they were, I mean, I... I watched and smelt people burning to death after being necklaced policemen who were uh who were killed when uh part of South Africa ahead of the elections rose up in a kind of in a kind of coup that was quickly put down, but you know, the overnight and through the next day they killed more than fifty nine people on the streets of that town. Anyone who was black, they just shot and killed them. So I grew up in these things. By the time I went to um Afghanistan, um, you know, I had been living other people's wars for years. And by the way, my own people, right, in South Africa. And when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't go with the U.S. military, for goodness sake. Come on. I lived with Afghan soldiers on their front line, on my own. People who had not seen the face of a woman in public, outside the walls of their own home for more than eight years of Taliban rule. The Taliban held 95% of that country when I went in there right after 9-11, before the bombing, US bombing campaign began. And when I was in Iraq, during the invasion of Iraq, I wasn't with the US military, I was with the Iraqi people. Right. And all the time that I lived there, I lived in the red zone with Iraqi people, first in a hotel until that was bombed, blew up right underneath us, our CBS bureau. And 13 people died that day, including a five-year-old girl. I remember seeing her hand on the ground. And, um, you know, so... uh, by the time I was embedded, like that was only one part of what I did when I lived there. I mean, when I went with the Shiite militias, nobody said I was embedded, right. right? And now I was suddenly blinded uh, by these crazy Shiite people. No. I mean when I lived with Afghans, nobody said, oh, you know, now she's embedded with Afghan people. Right. And and so she no, come on. It's like what when I go when I the first time I ever went encountered the US military personally on the battlefield was when they shelled the tank. I mean a tank, a marine tank shelled the hotel um that we were in during the invasion. And it was by mistake, but they killed two journalists and, and wounded others. And one of them I was, you know, I knew well um from Reuters television. And um I had to write the letter on behalf of all the guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I none of them felt confident enough in their English. I had to write the letter to his son. Yeah. You know? So but um but when I was in uh, Iraq and the US came in at the fall of Baghdad, the Marines had overtaken the OSS. I mean, the the, the Special Security Organization, SSO. And everyone knew about the Mukhabarat in Iraq, but far fewer people talked about the SSO. And they were really, really terrifying. So I went to their headquarters and the Marines had taken over the building. And they were like, well, where's your badge? Yeah. Like, Badge? What are you talking about? All oh, the reporters embedded with us—they have badges. I was like, I don't have a badge. Three and a half hours later, they let me in. <laughs> with the badge? No, no badge. No they badge. were just like—and one of the Marines who was assigned to escort me was—I looked around at that point. They were like, "Just do what you want, like yeah. go right." But this guy, stay with you. He said, "Ma'am, I never thought you were gonna make it in here." Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, oh, well, it only took, you know." But basically, that was the problem that wouldn't go away. And they were like, "You need a badge." I'm like, "I don't need a badge." Right, I'm a journalist. Let me do my job, and they did.
4: Back to that little pencil that you got when you were one of your first jobs. You're still figuring this stuff out, and
3: don't take no for an answer. That's the yeah. resilience, right? Yeah. I mean, I've I've been I've been knocked back more times than I can count, and even when I was being raped in Egypt, every time I went down on my feet, I got back up. Yeah. You know, until I couldn't anymore because there was so many people on top of me. But I knew. If I stayed down, anyone knows, any journalist, anyone dealing with this stuff knows. If there's a big mob and a yeah. big crowd, you go down, you die. In trouble. So get back up. Yeah. That's like that's life, right? Well, Laura,
4: I, I want to come right back to that. We're going to take a short break. But when we come back, I want to go back to Egypt and talk through that because it's an amazing story of resiliency and how you overcame. And it's really incredible. So we're going to come back and we're with Laura Logan.
2: Spartans, if you listen to this show, you already know that spreading the message of resilience for mind and body is important to us. With that in mind, we're creating an event called Spartan World Media Fest brought to you by ATP Science at our World Championships in Tahoe. If you have a podcast that helps people move forward in their lives mentally, physically, or as a whole person, this might be a good fit for you. If you're interested and you want more information, send me a message. I'm at Spartan Up Podcast on Instagram. Welcome back
4: to Spartan Up. We're with my guest Laura Logan. And Laura, when we went to break, we just started talking about Egypt. And um, you had an incredibly uh, challenging event that happened to you. You were sexually assaulted and attacked in the square in Egypt. And talk us through that. Take us through that day and what happened.
3: So sexually assaulted is really the nice way to say it, right? And um, we do that because... The truth makes about these things makes us so uncomfortable. It still does. It's hard to talk about. It took me more than 10 years to be able to say that I was sodomized, you know, over and over and over again. And, you know, my my poor producer, who I work with still today, who was with me in Egypt that day, when I say this kind of stuff to him, he's like, oh, please, God, please. (laughs) And, you know, and we laugh because, I mean, because he's like a brother to me, right? And he's one of the greatest people that I know and so we can have that those conversations but what really happened to us in Egypt was that we were uh, you know as journalists the power that we have is enormous not because us personally not because we're powerful but because propaganda is um, well they say the pen is mightier than the sword right say that for a reason and so you can't pretend you know, I mean, look what was happening in Egypt at that time. The Mubarak regime, decades of rule, was was collapsing. And so there's all these people that are losing power and money and everything else. And and um, why? Because of this image of Tahrir Square where people are protesting every day and the world is demanding change, right? So they're losing control and they're not just going to let that happen. So uh, journalists were targeted and, um, and we were... Risk- we raced straight to the square that night. We landed just ten minutes after we landed at the airport in Cairo. Mubarak stepped down, and we had been in Egypt a week before, and we had run into the checkpoints and we'd been arrested and we'd spend a night in prison and we'd been separated and interrogated and and I was very very dehydrated, so I got really really sick, and in the and I was you know I was vomiting in the interrogation cells. I mean the the guys in black came with masks and and cuffs, you know, and took us in like that. And you don't know where you are and they hold you in stress positions and every time the vehicle stopped as we drove, people would reach through the windows and touch you and, you know, and things happen to you when, when your eyes are covered. Yeah. Yes, and you're taken in those situations. But we, we knew that the events about to unfold were of such significance that we didn't want to miss that. So we came back a week later and, um, Mubarak steps down and we head straight for the square, drop by the hotel, you know, leave things behind and get there. And in the middle of everything, with all these interviews, people saying, This is your revolution, you know, Google, Facebook, thank you, thank you to the US. It's like a Super Bowl party, right? right. And then it's not. And that's how fast it changes. The light on the camera goes down. Richard up, my cameraman and one of the greatest journalists in the history of the world, who I love and adore, says, I'm just going to change the battery. I just got a battery here. And in that moment, they pounce. right? They were waiting for their moment and bad um, guys in the crowd who know how to do this stuff, they do it all the time to Egyptian people, to people that, you know within their borders and within their control. They do it constantly. They just said the words that were the sparks that set fire to the crowd. And they started talking about taking my clothes off and uh, and all the other things they were going to do to me. And then uh, that's what they did, right? I mean, I, our our local Egyptian fixer said run, and I ran, and and the the crowd ran with me. And I thought these guys were helping. And then, you know, I realized as they slowed us down, and and as I so you you know someone's hand between your legs, you're like wait a minute, but. What was strange about it was I'd never been treated that way in the Islamic world. I had lived For years I'd already spent five years living in Iraq. I'd spent more than a year living in Afghanistan I'd been back to Afghanistan 30 times since then, you know for months at a time uh, at times and I'd never been treated that way and um, So it was a shock plus it's a shock and you're sort of thinking no, I mean, you think, you know, that, it's just an aberration. And then you realize that you're. it's a, well, I mean, at the point at which there's so many hands and there's so many men on you, and they're tearing your clothes off. And then, you know, you feel them trying to literally tear your breasts off your body. I had I had Mark's finger marks in blood across my skin. And, um,
4: and it separated you at this point. I mean, oh, yeah, separated. they
3: separated me, <laughs> except um, for Ray, our security guard. Um, not guard, our security yeah. specialist, right? And we we brought him with us because after spending a night disappearing in prison overnight, we felt we had to do something to make the company happy that yeah. we were being, you know, um, cautious about our, our well-being and safety. And Ray was an amazing person. I mean, that man, he just kept saying to me, "Don't let go, Laura. If you let go, you're going to die." Because he was really the only one who could see. And and even Ray. Couldn't bear to write in his report everything he saw. Because he saw them, you know, they were at, at, there was a point at which he said, they're beating us with flagpoles. He, he was talking to me all the time. And of course, they were raping me with flagpoles, right? And, but he, wasn't a, he, he couldn't say it.
2: Yeah.
3: And, um, you know, at, at a certain point, I realized that I was, um, it was very hard to breathe. It's the there's no uh, air. There's so many men that and the the oxygen goes out of the air and it's so hot, and um, your joints are distended and your muscles are distended and they're tearing. You know, everybody wants a piece of you, right? And um, and you know, they're just. I was raped over and over
4: and over with whatever they had. What, are, um, what what is your what is your mindset at this point? What yeah. are you thinking about?
3: In the beginning, I was fighting. You know, for my, I was trying to hold on to my dignity, right? Yeah. And then I realized about 20 minutes in that I was fighting for something that was long gone. I mean, at this point I'm stripped bare, right? I felt when as they ripped every piece of clothing from my body, I could feel the night air on my skin. I was so utterly conscious every single moment of what was happening to me. And, um, and when they finally tore away from me, I just, I thought, oh my God, like it's over. And I felt the adrenaline leave my body. And I thought, I'm very honest with myself, right? I try really hard to be honest with myself. And, uh, and I knew in that moment that I was done. Like my ability to affect the outcome of what was happening there. I didn't, it was. It didn't exist, and um, I knew I was going to die. And I, I had a millisecond where I just gave up, and it's almost like I imagine it's like the glass draining, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine the glass draining. There's nothing left of me in that moment, and instantly, <laughs> what fires back is guilt, guilt. Oh my god. My daughter Lola was 10 months old and my son was 1, Joseph. And I thought, "Oh my god. Like like they deserve more. They deserve better than this this person that just gave up like that. They deserve I what did I have all I had in that moment that I could that I could leave for them was to know that I I died fighting. I was gonna fight till the last moment. The whatever was left of me. I that's all I could. That's all I had. So that's what I did. And I I realized it was foolish to fight for something that was long gone. Right, my dignity and all of that. I still felt terrible shame, but um, but once you know every breath is harder and harder.
4: Is all you can focus on, right? And, and you, yes, and you didn't give up. And you kept fighting and you find yourself.
3: I bit someone. I bit one of them. His face. I could still see him. He was right there. Young. And he had stubble. And I, I just, I bit for his cheek and I, I yeah, I mean for what, right? Nothing. Yeah. But.
4: Well, for everything.
3: And right. then, you know, what happened, I thought when I lost Ray, that that was my death sentence. But actually, what I realized afterwards, Ray was the only one who really knew what was happening because you've got a mob of two to 300 men. Nobody can see me underneath all of that. And so um, when I was dragged and went down for the last time, when there were too many of them on top of me and I couldn't stand anymore, I was dragged into the part of the square, which is, it's roads and gutters and fences. It's not just like this flat table, right? It's not just a square. So when, I, when that happened and there were these women and children um, that were living and protesting in the square and living there with their families all week and there was some of their family members, young men that were with them, the combination of these things of being dragged into these women, of these men standing up to protect their own women from this rabid mob, right? That gave me the space to realize, oh my God, I might actually survive. But that was honestly, that was just abject terror because now the temperature of the air has changed. Like that's what you feel when the the mob is on you, it's fire, right? And then that space, air is in that space. And with that air is hope. And this woman, uh, one of the women started pouring water on my face and all I can think of to say is, is when I can talk is army, Army, and, and this woman is looking at me, and literally had the thought, "Oh my God, so, so many people in Egypt speak English. How do I have one who doesn't speak English? Does she understand me? Can you imagine that you have time to think that?" And uh, but mostly, what I'm consumed by is is abject fear that that mob that's that far away, right, L- like on the other side of you away, that all they're going to do is reach back and drag me in because I know. I have moments left if they get me again. And um, the army, some of these soldiers fought their way through the mob. And that was because of Ray, because he went and found the Egyptian army and he made them do that. And when they got to me and I was naked, you know, people were throwing things at me. I, I looked up, I saw people taking pictures of me and I saw the cell phones, you know, and um, the soldiers wouldn't touch me because I was naked. And uh, that was a feeling of terrible desperation. I can't even describe it. That was definitely one of the worst moments of my life. Because having accepted that, that I was going to die and then being given hope, was too cruel to lose it. And now I had time to fear what I had just, what they'd just done to me. I knew what it meant to be dragged back into that mob. And I didn't know, I I I didn't. I just couldn't do it again. I just couldn't do it again. So then when the soldiers, they disappeared, but they came back with the black shador, the traditional Islamic robes, and they put it over me. And then they carried me to the side of the square. And our Egyptian driver from the week before had come back to work for us again. I remember him standing with his arms out and he carried me on one of these little side streets of the square and that's where Max McClellan, my producer and Richard Butler—they were there uh, with Ray Jackson and uh, and and Max. Just I remember he just dropped to his he dropped to his knees. He was at my feet and he just uh, kept, and I just all I could say was, "You can't imagine what they did to me. You can't imagine when I could talk." Because the first thing I did was call my husband and he said I thought I was explaining myself perfectly well seems to be a patent in our marriage. And he said all he heard was screeching. Yeah. He said that I sounded, That's he said crazy. they were animal sounds, not words.
4: Well, I can't, and I watched the 60 Minutes interview with you on this as you just described it uh, for us, and I can't imagine, I don't think anybody can. You know, I, in speaking with you, um, I was sharing a personal experience I had of losing a family you and I got into this conversation, you brought it up, there's no ranking in terms of these bad things that happen to us. And no. I thought that was interesting because for most people watching today, including myself, I know you don't like when people say this, but it's hard to imagine that. So I, I, I do compare those experiences, but you don't. You think that somebody else that's gone through, I lost a family member, my loss of my family member, somebody that's fighting cancer, somebody that's fighting anything else. Can comparable. you imagine
3: losing a child? No. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a child with cancer? I had cancer a year later, right? And I was not prepared to deal with that. When I when 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 that call came from my doctor and he said, I'm so sorry, Lara, I felt like I was falling off the side of a building, hitting the walls, and pieces of me, chunks of me were just flying in every direction, and there was nothing to hold on to. People deal with these things every day. It's a gift for me that I, the thing I have to deal with, I could carry, and my children don't have to carry it. That's a gift, I'm one of the lucky ones.
4: Such interesting and great perspective, and Laura, I could talk with you all day long. You pretty much have. I have, yes, we've been together a while today. (laughs) Well, you know, let me me end with two things. Um, As you got, you know, to the other side of this experience, it never leaves us, you talked about that, it becomes part of you at some level. how has that experience changed you or has it changed you in terms of what you're doing today? Because what, what I'm learning about my dear friend, Laura Logan, is that you're incredibly resilient. You know, you are exactly who you say you are, and you do it in a way that's respectfully unapologetic. This is who I am. This is who I've always been. And you're still a beacon for so many beautiful things with truth, and you're a light and an inspiration to people. How did you, how did you bring it all together after that event?
3: Really, there's a South African woman who was raped, gutted, throat split, tossed out of a car in the bush in the middle of nowhere, right? And I never forgot her story. I was about 21 when this happened in the news. And uh, Alison actually described, they tossed her out of the car, left her for dead. She had to feel around in the dark, in the bush, with the thorns and stones and everything, find her entrails, find her denim shirt, hold her insides in, she had to figure out why the world was upside down. Her body was one and her head was the other. And she had to reach back and pull her head onto her body and crawl to the road in the dark. By the time she got there, she would lost so much blood, all she had the strength to do was lay across that road. And the first car went around her, but the second one stopped. And a young veterinarian got out, and he knew enough to reach into her throat and grab that artery and call for help. At the trial of the two men who did that to her, They asked her that question, you just asked me. And she said, they took so much from me that night. Why would I give them the rest of my life as well? What more can can you say than that? Do you know how many people there are like that all over the world right now? they They didn't deserve any of me. They didn't deserve what they got. But I decide how much I give them every single day. And a lot of days, I don't give them anything.
4: Yeah. Most days. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, I, the last question I want to ask you, we should end right there, but what are the two or three things? You know, you can lead to the eye, it's, uh, it's Spartan Up. And to me, what are the two or three things that, that guide you today, that you live life by?
3: I never leave anything behind. You always get all of me, right? Principles, um, everything has a price. Everything has a price. Even the great things have a price. And what price are you prepared to pay? You know, principles don't mean anything if you abandon them when it's hard. Um, I stay true to myself. And uh, nothing is worth more to me than that, right? And um, when Nelson Mandela was on trial for terrorism in the late 1960s in South Africa, his family and friends begged him not to say the words that he said when he was on the stand, because they were certain the South African government were going to execute him for saying them. And he did it anyway, right? He was willing to pay the ultimate price for what he believed in. And he said, freedom is an ideal for which I would like to live. But it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. People in South Africa lived those, all the people around me, who lived and died in in the struggle against apartheid, all my life I've looked for that in people and I find it and I have it in me. Nobody takes your freedom from you. Nobody gives it to you, nobody takes it away. It's in you. So that's, you know, that's how I live. That's how I live every moment of my life. And I have bad moments, I have moments of weakness, I have moments I regret, all of that stuff, but I never walk away or I never collapse into bed at the end of the day without knowing that I did everything that was humanly possible for me.
4: Laura, I am a better person for having known you and I truly appreciate And me uh, for knowing you. Thank you. And I know you mean that. I, I do. Mean, I do appreciate it. Thanks for being on Spartan Up with this. Thanks for joining us. And thank you. All my best to you. Thank you, thank you for, me. for having me.
1: <laughs> I was I was blown away there. Were you guys blown away? Absolutely. I mean you you know her. So
0: I, I do know her, but it's listen, I've heard the story before. Um and I've heard it in person. Uh and but it's always, it's always hard, you know, th- to listen to that kind of a story like that. And there's always something a little bit different. Uh, and, you know, and I, I know her and I know her producers and her, her bodyguard and all of those guys. So, um, yeah, it's a remarkable, remarkable story. Again, we talk about strength and resiliency and grit. I mean, it's one thing to live through that and have that, the strength and the energy to do that, but then to continue that as your job and to re-go back into those areas. Well,
1: but 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 hang on, not take anything away, because nope. I, I agree with you. Um, you. You would go back out there after getting shot at.
0: Yes, um, I, I guess for me, I look at it as, you know, you're know you right, it's just job. But uh, I don't know that, I don't know that that's something, the difference is I would be directed to do it. Now I could volunteer, but I would be sent. To get that type of job that she has, that's a volunteer thing. You look around, there's only a few true war correspondents out there. Why? Because most people don't want to do that. It's an extraordinarily dangerous job. Journalists get killed around the world all the time. And in in the interview, she alludes, she went to about every civil war on the continent of Africa. She was 17 years old. She was going in and out of the morgues in South Africa, identifying bodies. She was talking about She used the term necklace in there. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's when they put the the tire around you and light you on fire. And so she was talking about the smell and the stench of all of that. You know, so she talks about, you know, the woman in South Africa that got her that was raped and her entrails cut out and her neck sliced. These are tough stories. At some point, somebody would say, I've had enough. I've seen enough. But she just kept going back and back and back. I mean, she talked about how many times she'd been to Iraq and Afghanistan, and what's even more impressive, unlike many, 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 most of the journalists, they go and they'll want to be embedded with the American forces. why you're you're secure, or if you're British, you know you might want British soldiers. She would go and live with with the Afghans or the Iraqis. She's living with them, and so her security is her and whatever you know couple guys she has with her that that's a That's a different mentality. And it's a different level of. um,
1: So uh, some people would say, and by the way, I'm on her side, I'm on your side. Some people would say, well, that was that was irresponsible.
0: Well, she's trying to bring you a story that you, the audience, a story that she believes everybody should know. Right. We're a nation at war. Somebody ought to be watching what that war looks like. Why we're there. What are we doing in the name of our government? So somebody ought to be doing that.
1: There needs to be different eyes on that subject. It can't all be the same.
0: Right. And it's just the government telling you something. Well, that's called propaganda. So you, you need an independent source. And again, now a lot of corporations don't want to send somebody out because that's insurance. And, you know, um, but listen, I mean, she's, you saw the interview. She's a lot more than that. I mean, just a war correspondent. You know, she, she's a woman, two small kids, uh, having to having to do all of that she's just everything she approaches is with just kind of this inner calm uh kind of a grace i would say
1: what what kind of training like preparing for something can help minimize risk or increase success so what kind of training does a war correspond well, get you know, in terms of protecting well, themselves yeah it's
0: interesting because when uh, iraq war i'm trying to trying to get my timeline right it's been a few years uh, when the Iraq, was it Iraq or Afghanistan or de- way back in Desert Storm, maybe even, you know, the, the, the Pentagon the U.S. military, DOD, started a course basically where where news guys would come and then uh, be embedded with troops for a week or so and get some training. Um, they, they tell American soldiers when a correspondent is with you, you're not in charge of their security. So don't put your life at risk because of them. They can tell you that all you want. You've got a citizen, a civilian, another human behind you, doesn't have a weapon, and somebody's shooting. You're trained to shoot. You're going to protect them. There is no other way. That that's what's going to happen.
2: That just
1: the risk of that just got even worse in my mind for for these correspondents, knowing that the they're being told, or the the, the military is being told, don't don't take care of them.
0: Really. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know. Jeez. it's— well, you know, not at the risk of the mission. Right? Yes, yes. You have a mission to do this. They're coming behind you. They're not your responsibility. But but that's theory. That's not that's not practice.
1: I got so many notes here to, to, to review here. But but the emotional stories, the one that she references in, in Africa is a pretty, pretty tough one.
0: Well, they are. They are. And again, she talks about just, you know, she grew up there. Right. So part of the training for a war correspondent for her w- was her hometown, you know, where she grew up. So she saw it, she lived it, uh, she experienced it all early on and, you know, she, she got a, a taste for it. Um, now she, she is uh, a very bright woman. She, you know, she's on TV. So she's also, uh, you know, an exceptionally, um, attractive woman. But I think at some point that people want to downplay your abilities because of that. And I remember once having a, 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 a general a very high-ranking I won't say three or four star who kind of said okay I'll talk to her uh, bring her in or something and I said she did not become the senior foreign correspondent for CBS news because she's pretty that's not how she got the job so you need to be prepared and I remember she sat down she asked a question he gave a the answer she retorted basically that's bullshit." Uh, and then you could see him kind of sit up in the chair, straighten his suit and start over again. Like, oh, wait a minute. I, I've got somebody here who knows what they're talking about.
1: Right. So, So, so yeah, she's got the stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah. And she's
1: been through the war.
0: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and she also talks in there again. I alluded to about mother. She was at my retirement ceremony. Uh, and then we're all back at my house. And so you've got soldiers, SEALs. You've got everybody you can imagine. I, I don't know. The house was it must have been honor people in there. There was one child in that house. Uh, her little two year old daughter, Lola, was just running around all over because she flew. You know, she was living in Texas at the time, I think, or maybe still in D.C. But she talks about she takes you. Don't invite me if you don't expect my children to come along. So, you know,
1: No, I love it. I love it. Because no when you Yeah. When you work at that level, you've got to incorporate family yeah, into it.
0: I, quick story. And then I think we'll wrap it up here. She did. She was in Afghanistan eight months pregnant and one of the she used to make my life a little bit hard because she was very persistent eight months pregnant and she wanted to go out on a patrol it is not happening it is it's, it's not happening it's it won't happen it can't happen can't be a female soldier and be pregnant and go on a patrol so why in the world would i let you go out there and then one day I was watching the news and she didn't go out with it, but she found somebody to take her out there. I was going to say, you know, I, I and, thought that
1: and, the ending of that story yeah, was going to be she, she got out there. She had
0: body armor on and she was sliding down some hill and, you know, and like just she is on the verge of just when you talk about driven. I mean, that's that's as driven as a human can get. Right. Reminds me of Rose Wetzel, you know. Yeah, Rose um, running the
1: running the race and uh, breastfeeding. Breastfeeding at, the, same
0: at time. the you know at the half mile mark. But
1: which, by the way, all this stuff um, seems so out of uh, reality and so out of normal. But you know, go back 200 years ago. Yeah, no, right, right, right.
0: right. But but in today's world. In
1: today's world, this is a, this um, is a stretch. So there's a few warriors left. Yeah. Basically, yeah. she's all one. Right. Of them. With that, we want to hear your tough story. Uh, comment down below. Reach out on email joasbarton.com. Do whatever you need to do because um, we're here for you. We want to push you and get you off that friggin' couch.